Welcome to Power Play. I'm Mike LeCouture. Today, President Xi scolds Trudeau. If in there Canada, is sincerity on your part, free and open and frank dialogue, and that is what we will continue to have. The Prime Minister was on the defensive after the Chinese president complained that the PMO released information about a conversation between the two leaders. We'll break down the diplomatic dispute. And NATO investigates. Our preliminary analysis suggests that the incident was likely caused by a Ukrainian air defense missile. After an emergency meeting, NATO says it believes that the missile that killed two in Poland yesterday was fired by Ukraine. But Russia is still being blamed. We bring in the Polish and Russian ambassadors to talk about it. Plus, staring down a school strike again. We have five days before this strike notice period expires. We are urging the union to stay at the table. The union representing Ontario's education workers issues a five-day strike notice a week after returning to the bargaining table. Is Canada's most populous province headed for school closures? We'll bring in Ontario's education minister and a union leader. This is Power Play. Now let's get to the players. Everything we discuss is then leaked to the paper. That's not appropriate. If in there Canada, is sincerity on your part, free and open and frank dialogue, and that is what we will continue to have, we will continue to look to work constructively together, but there will be things we will disagree on, and we will have to That's great. It was a terse exchange between two world leaders at the G20 summit in Bali, Indonesia. Canadian cameras caught Chinese President Xi Jinping calling out Prime Minister Justin Trudeau for telling the media about their conversation yesterday. The diplomatic dispute comes at a packed summit of emergency meetings on Poland and attempts to rally more support for Ukraine. That's where we begin tonight with CTV's Annie Bergeron-Oliver in Bali, Indonesia. Well, Mike, the final day of the G20 didn't really go as people would have initially expected. You know, this morning there was this emergency G7 NATO leaders meeting that was called at the request of Joe Biden. That meeting lasted about an hour. After that, Joe Biden had a press conference in which he said it seemed unlikely that the missile that hit Poland was fired from within Russia. From there, the prime minister went to another meeting, this time a bilateral with the new British prime minister. The two had a press conference afterwards where they both condemned Russia and said ultimately this situation is the fault of Russia who illegally invaded Ukraine. They also spoke to Zelensky. The prime minister said he had a good conversation with the Ukrainian president, uh, though he didn't specify uh, really any of the details that were discussed in that meeting, though he said he reiterated support for Ukraine for the armed forces and offered additional assistance in terms of military training. He said that Canada will continue its training mission of uh, Ukrainian forces in the UK until December of 2023. So that is an extension of that mission. Then, of course, Mike, you have China. We've all seen this video now that we rarely get. Our wonderful pool camera captured this video during uh, the closing session today at the G20. This very brief interaction between the Chinese President Xi and Justin Trudeau, where Xi goes up to Trudeau and says essentially that it was inappropriate, that details of their conversation yesterday were quote-unquote leaked to the media. We talked to Trudeau about that today, and he said he will continue 
continue talking about open dialogue, the necessity for a free press. And he says, really, ultimately, what this comes down to is the fact that China and Canada have very different views when it comes to governance and when it comes to information sharing. So it's been a very busy day, and now the Prime Minister is done in Bali. And tomorrow, we go to Bangkok and Thailand for the APEC summit. Thanks for that, Annie. That's Annie Bergeron Oliver reporting from Bali, Indonesia. So should Canadians be concerned about the fallout between the Prime Minister and President Xi? And what will that interaction be an indication going forward for Canada-China relations? Well, joining me now is Charles Burton. He's a senior fellow at the Macdonald-Laurie Institute. He was previously a counselor at the Canadian Embassy to China. Thanks for being here, Mr. Burton. I wanted to ask you what you made of that tense exchange between Prime Minister Trudeau and President Xi. I mean, the body language was clearly cold, with President Xi barely even looking the Prime Minister in the eyes. Well, and I think in addition to the body language, the actual Chinese language that was used was the kind of language that uh, the president of China would never use to the president of the United States. It was uh, rough, disdainful, um, you know, threatening, menacing. It, it really bore a, a resemblance to the kind of wolf warrior diplomacy that we're seeing out of some uh, Chinese foreign ministry officials and some ambassadors, but one had not seen previously out of China's uh, head of state, Xi Jinping. And essentially, you know, he dressed down Trudeau for um, releasing information about this 10-minute uh, informal chat that they had in a crowded room yesterday, said that he had mischaracterized the meeting. Um, I don't know if that's true or not, but Mr. Xi might have a point. And then essentially said that, you know, you have to be honest and create conditions for us to, um, to communicate. And if you don't, uh, I can't say what the consequences will be. So that was... Fairly, um, you know, in terms of the use of the Chinese language, it was fairly menacing, suggesting that uh, we may be seeing some Chinese retaliation coming up, particularly once our Indo-Pacific, our Indo-Pacific um, policy is released, which uh, may contain a lot of language that constrains China's espionage and harassment and police operations here in Canada, in addition to Canada getting more into compliance with the United States, Australia, and the UK in, in uh, security measures in the Indo-Pacific region. So I... I Mr. Burton, I've only got about 30 seconds left or so. Yeah, sorry, I've only got about 30 seconds. What does this do for relations going forward now, though? I think uh, any illusion that uh, we might have that we can collaborate with the Chinese on things like climate change and global health are not going to be happening. China is seriously ticked off at our prime minister and I think at Canada, and I don't think they'll be meeting again anytime soon. Charles Burton, thank you for taking the time. We really appreciate this. Returning now to our other top story, the investigation into that explosion that killed two people in Poland yesterday near the Ukrainian border. Now, NATO is investigating, and it says their preliminary findings show it was likely a Ukrainian air defense missile fired to defend itself against Russian attacks that hit Poland. But Ukraine's president, Vladimir Zelensky, is denying those findings. Now, for more on that investigation and the threat of Russia's war in Ukraine that it poses to Canada and to Canada's ally, 
NATO, uh, NATO ally Poland. Let's bring in Poland's ambassador, Witold uh, Jelski. Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate that. First of all, condolences for what happened uh, in your country, the loss of life there. And I wanted to know if you could give me the latest on the ground from, uh, from eastern Poland. <clears throat> thank you so much. Thank you for the condolences and thank you for uh, inviting me to the program. Any, uh, any conversation on the current situation in that regard needs to be taken a little bit into the context. Uh, we know, um, we understand that the war waged against Russia uh, on Ukraine that started in February is uh, targeting, I mean, the Russians are targeting civilians, they're targeting uh, civilian infrastructure, and especially recently, uh, it's, happen it's happening uh, in a particularly big scale. But on the 15th, yesterday, we had a uh, very strong, probably the strongest, uh, airstrike against Ukraine with, uh, as Ukrainians are saying, about uh, 90 cruise missiles, drones, etc., etc. And at that time, you did have an explosion in, uh, in, uh, near the border of Ukraine on the Polish territory, which is the territory of NATO. Mm -hmm. um, the investigation has started right away. And it is ongoing. Uh, you have some of the elements uh, provided by the politicians, many speculations in the media. I would advise caution in terms of, uh, of speculating because this is a, a, a serious situation since it uh, relates to, uh, to NATO and we have uh, a certain structure that, uh, um, um, uh, that, that would, you know, sort of... Yeah, uh, I, I wanted to pick up on that and how, you know... I being a NATO member, yeah. and Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of NATO, did say that it looks like it was caused by Ukrainian air defense missiles. Uh, and, but world leaders are also pointing out that those missiles are only in use because of the attacks uh, from Russia. So how much of this is a reminder that NATO territory is really on the doorstep of this conflict? It is, uh, it is the front line. Uh, both Poland, uh, but the, you know, other countries, the Baltic um, states are on the front line of the, um, of, of the situation. Poland is bordering with Russia, just like the Baltic countries. And we have a, a very, uh, I would say, horrid history uh, uh, for centuries uh, with our Russian neighbor. The, the unfortunate thing is that the mentality of Russian leaders and the... Uh, um, uh, to some extent, the, uh, the Russian society did not change over the years. Uh, and, uh, and the result of that is the unneeded, unnecessary, horrid war uh, against Ukrainians. So this was a near miss. Are you prepared for another occasion where maybe it won't be a near miss? Well, it was not a near miss. It's, uh, it's, I mean, it, in terms uh, of it sort of triggering an Article 5, apologies. Oh, I, yeah. What I mean is that in terms of it really sort of uh, triggering in Article 5, an attack on one is attack on all. The, 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 uh, the, the decisions are not there. The investigation has not finished. Uh, there are ongoing conversations. President uh, of Poland, Andrzej Duda, and Prime Minister of Poland, Mateusz Morawiecki, and other leaders had uh, throughout the last 20 hours or so many conversations with all the leaders all over the world, including uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, uh, uh, Mr. Melanie Jolie, but also leaders from... Uh, um, um, uh, the President of the United States, uh, basically all the leaders of, uh, of NATO uh, on, on very many levels, levels and this is, uh, this is an ongoing process. Um, at this time, uh, again, all the leaders uh, are advising caution in presenting the assessment um, of, the, of, of the situation. And as you rightly put, this is very important, this situation would not have happened if uh, Russians did not attack Ukraine.
Appreciate this, Ambassador. Mm -hmm. Polish Ambassador Witold Jelski, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Despite suspecting the missile that hit Poland yesterday was fired by Ukraine, NATO is still placing blame on Russia as the Russian assault on Ukraine puts Polish territory near the border at risk. Now, following yesterday's incursion into Poland, will Russia pull back? Let's find out. Joining us now is Russia's ambassador to Canada, Oleg Stepanov. Welcome, Ambassador. Thank you for taking the time today. I wanted to ask you first. Now, at first, there were reports that the missile that hit Poland were fired by Russia. At any moment yesterday, did you think that it could have been one that was fired by your forces? Well, good evening. Uh, of course, I uh, never actually thought that uh, um, uh, Russian forces could uh, could fire missiles into the uh, Polish territory. And uh, it was uh, absolutely clear that uh, the accident uh, uh, happened and our Ministry of Defense uh, very uh, timely uh, explained uh, uh, what happened in reality and uh, your allies, uh, including, of course, the United States, uh, were very quick to confirm that it was uh, Ukrainian uh, air defense missiles that hit uh, the Polish territory. Now, this time was a near miss. And, and I say near miss because you know what could happen if a Russian-fired uh, missile would hit a NATO country. It could trigger Article 5 and a huge conflict. So you know the risk is there. Are you prepared for that possibility? Well, uh, it's a risky situation. I agree with you. And uh, that's why uh, Russia was advocating for many years, and especially um, during uh, recent months, uh, for keeping the channels of uh, communications between uh, the militaries uh, open in order to avoid miscalculations or misunderstandings and that could trigger a very dire consequences. So, Ambassador, are you saying that the lines of communication are still open to Russia? Because by all accounts, Russia has invaded Ukraine and is attacking Ukraine. Well, you know the genesis of the situation, uh, why the especially military operation became unavoidable and uh, there are two components um, nowadays uh, that, first of all, the channels for diplomacy are Sorry, when open. you say unavoidable, Ambassador, I just want to be clear, when you say un unavoidable, why was it unavoidable? If, if Russia invaded Ukraine, how was that unavoidable except for Russia not invading Ukraine? Okay, uh, you remember that uh, since 2014, when the unconstitutional when, coup... When Russia annexed Crimea, to, yes. To, to, when Russia annexed, place, illegally oh, annexed Crimea, yes. Let, let kind of uh, follow the consequences of uh, events uh, first. Uh, there was a uprising in Kiev. Uh, the president Yunukovych which was uh, democratically elected, congratulated by the government of Canada and uh, other Western states. Uh, his rule was uh, under pressure. Russia and Western states uh, engaged in a diplomatic uh, attempt to peacefully solve uh, that political crisis. Poland, Germany and France became guarantors of the deal between President Yanukovych and the opposition that uh, stated 
uh, the deal stated, among other things, that uh, there would be... But, but then, but Ambassador, uh, the result was, the result was Ukraine invading, uh, being invaded by Russia. Well, there was supposed to be an elections in April 2014, uh, and the deal was witnessed by the European Union and uh, individual countries, uh, France, Germany, and uh, Poland. Next day, when the deal was signed, the opposition uh, took hold. Ambassador, with all due respect, history has shown what, what the real story was there. With all yeah, due yeah. respect, history has shown what the story there is. But I wanted to ask you, I just wanted to ask you about this current conflict. Before, before we leave you here, by many military assessments, your military has retreated from Kherson. You've lost tens of thousands of soldiers. At what point do you deem this invasion of Ukraine a failure? Well, uh, you know, the goals of the special military operation is denazification and demilitarization of uh, Ukraine and uh, allowing uh, all uh, ethnic uh, groups living in Ukraine uh, to enjoy their democratic rights. I'm talking about the... But why, uh, why do you say Russia they enjoy their democratic rights? Were they not enjoying their democratic rights before Russia invaded Ukraine? Uh, not really. Uh, well, look, uh, here in Canada, it's, it's uh, exactly a good example. Uh, you are a bilingual country, uh, speaking French and English. Uh, Ukraine is a bilingual country, speaking Russian and Ukrainian. What would happen, can you imagine, if you uh, decide, for example, just uh, uh, imagine for a moment, that you deprive uh, Quebec... I'm trying to imagine it, but how does that justify an in invasion, sir? I mean, it... it look, once again, let's uh, uh, look the uh, preceding events. Uh, what happened in Ukraine is the Russian-speaking population was practically subject to the uh, cultural uh, and physical genocide since 2014. Ambassador, and Ambassador, I'm going to have to leave it there because unfortunately, I, I don't think some of the facts are supporting your statements. Uh, I do appreciate you coming on Power Play. I do appreciate you being part of this conversation. We're going to have to leave it there. Ambassador Stepanov, the ambassador, Russia's ambassador to Canada. Thanks so much. Coming up, strike warning again. 55,000 education workers in Ontario have given notice of more job action. Five days before they walk out, can the union and government broker a deal and avoid a strike? Talk to Ontario's Education Minister, Stephen Lecce, next on Power Play. Well, the countdown clock has been set for Monday. If the union representing 55,000 education workers in Ontario doesn't get an offer that they feel they can support, schools may close again. The Canadian Union of Public Employees filed a five-day notice today, and it has parents across the province on edge. Negotiations had restarted about a week ago, but the union says the government's latest offer just isn't enough. So what was in that offer? Well, we don't have all the details because the mediator has asked both sides to remain tight-lipped. But we do know Ontario's most recent offer to the union included a $1 per hour raise for each year of the agreement. That works out to about a 3.5% salary increase. So are we headed for a second strike next week? We'll get to the unions um, to weigh in here in just a moment. But first, we have Ontario Education Minister Stephen Lecce once again. Thank you for joining us, Minister Lecce. 
I wanted to ask you, you've called this decision to strike unnecessary, and you've said you're very disappointed. Now, this is supposed to be a negotiation. Why are you using that type of language? Because I think it speaks to the sentiment of parents who are, again, the casualties of a union chasing higher wages for their members on the backs of kids who will be out of school potentially next week. I am exacerbated uh, um, uh, by how we're at a point today um, uh, where a union is striking when on every request they have made, Mike, they wanted us to remove the differentiated pay, have one flat rate. We did that. It didn't get a deal. They want us to repeal Bill 28. We did that. It didn't get us to a deal. They want us to increase staffing. We offered 1,800 more every year over the course of four years. It didn't get us to a deal. They asked us to maintain the best pensions, the best benefits, and 131 days of sick leave. That didn't get us to a deal. They asked us not to make any concessions to their entitlements. That didn't get us to a deal. And then they asked us, most importantly, significantly increase our wages, particularly for the lowest paid workers. We did that. $335 million more million from the last time I was on your show. That's the net increase in pay we're offering for our workers with a real emphasis on lowest paid. We did that. And yet we're still here. And I think a lot of parents, a lot of families and taxpayers are asking the same question. Why are we here? We have moved in every major request of government. The union has been intransigent on their demands. And as you know, two weeks ago, the reason why they striked Mike was because on that day before legislation was on the table, because they were requesting and demanding 11.7% per year, every year over the course of that deal. We're talking four years. So minister, and, and Minister, I, I, I will give you that, that there has been some um, progress made here. But the union is saying that they're asking for guarantees of higher staffing levels, including an early childhood educator in every kindergarten classroom. Is that an unreasonable request in your mind? I, I, I don't doubt uh, I don't doubt uh, the demand for more staff. In fact, I can confirm we've hired 7,000 more under our progressive conservative government, specifically education workers in the QP union, workers like theirs that they represent, and we're going to hire 1,800 more. My point is this entire debate up until last night was about money. I, I think most of us as objective observers of these strikes that have happened over every party for the last 30, 40 years, every couple of years, know that to be true. It was not about services, this, this concept of services for students. It has always been about wages. Two Sundays ago, the president of the union said, we're striking on the basis that we believe we are entitled to a, quote, significant wage increase. They wanted 33% over three years. They didn't get it. We know what the fault line is for the union. That's why we upped the ante and significantly scaled up our increase by $335 million. Minister, I'm, unfortunately, I'm running out of time, and I hate to cut you off one last time, but the last sure. question I wanted to ask you is, last time we were in this position, your government brought forth back-to-work legislation. Can we expect that again? Look, the government's been very clear. We're going to stay at the table. Uh, we're going to work with the mediator, and we want to land a deal on a voluntary basis. That is our commitment. We... Uh, we are not going to be reintroducing a Bill 28. Uh, we're going to be very intentional on staying at the table to keep these kids in school. And I want the union to hear us. This should not be a casual invocation of a strike notice every couple of weeks in Ontario. We should not be normalizing this. This has an impact on children, on our economy, and on working parents. We have an obligation to our kids, and I hope they will stay at the table with us in good faith. Work with this private mediator, the same gentleman that worked with this government, myself as minister, and this union three years ago to get a deal. Our kids deserve to be in school. Minister, they have been through so much Minister, hardship. we have to leave it there, but 
I apologize, Minister, we have to leave it there, but we will be giving that message to the union. We're just about to talk to them. Appreciate your time. That was the government side, and listening to that conversation was Laura Walton. She's the president of the Canadian Union of Public Employees, Ontario School Board Council. Laura, thanks for being here. First off, you heard what Minister Lecce said there. Um, you know, what do you think about the fact that they're not going to be using back-to-work legislation, and they want to keep talking at the bargaining table? Why won't you go there? We are at the bargaining table. We've never left the bargaining table. We've never left the bargaining table once, although it seems to be claimed all the time that we have been. Um, you know, so then why, also... just, just to be clear, sorry, I, 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 just before we start to you know, get, dive into this, so then why a strike notice? I think parents are sitting back and, and saying, why now? Well, and I heard what the minister said, that he has never heard that services were one of the things that we were requesting. We've been requesting it since August, which is very concerning to me that maybe the minister hasn't been hearing from the parties that are sitting at the table. I feel like maybe there's a disconnect between the minister and the parties at the table, and that's something that needs to be discussed. But our proposal is on our website, and you can see where we've been asking for these services from the very first day we served uh, our proposals. I also heard the minister say that there's eight more new positions. Last night, when we were trying to land a deal, we said we need new positions. We need to ensure that the services that kids need will be done in our schools. We need to ensure they're going to be done by us. We need to ensure that there's more custodians to keep the schools safe and clean, especially during this crisis that we're seeing of childhood illnesses. And we were told there is no new money for services. Full stop. So if there's 1,800 more new QP positions available, send it over in writing, and I will be happy to take the agreement to the members tomorrow. Do not worry that having a strike mandate, even though you do have to give five days' notice, that it kind of sours the negotiating table because it doesn't sort of feel like everybody's there in good faith? Actually, I have been through many bargaining rounds. And I've seen strike notices been served in many different ways. It only sours the relationship if you're taking the tactic of what this minister is taking and blowing it out of proportion. There are five days. It's time to get serious. There doesn't need to but be But this a is the second time. This is the second time well, in two weeks, with all due respect, that, that you're all, serving notice. Or that, that... With all due respect, that is because this government went nuclear. We didn't ask for the Bill 28 to be repealed. It was demanded by the public of Ontario that it be repealed. We are saying all of this could have been prevented without all of the hubbubaloo of Bill 28. That's what caused the delay. That's why negotiations fell apart, because this government chose to interfere with the charter rights of workers. What we are saying today, and I'll say it again, if there are 1,800 more new positions for CUPE, as the minister is claiming, we would like to see it come across the table tonight, and I will have a response for them. And then at that point, if, if that does come across the table tonight, then is this five-day strike warning off the table? I'll be more than happy to talk to the team, but I'm sure they would be very happy to take that back to the membership and have the membership make the decision as is required by law. Laura Walton from CUPE, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate that. You're welcome. Here is some other news that you need to know today. Canada's inflation rate was stagnant in October, but it is still up significantly year over year. Now, October's rate of 6.9% is exactly the same as September. 
and the breakdown likely won't come as much of a surprise. We paid slightly less for groceries last month than we did in September, but we paid a lot more to fill our gas tanks, 9.2% more after a decrease of 7% in September. Donald Trump, well, he's back on the ballot. The former president officially launched a 2024 White House bid last night. He had hoped to piggyback off the predicted red wave in last week's midterm elections. But instead, he starts in presidential campaigning mode, facing blame for the party's underwhelming performance. And coming up, diplomatic stand or faux pas? We bring in Canada's foreign affairs critics on the tense G20 meeting. Keep watching Power Play. We'll be right back. Canada uh, trusts its citizens with um, information about the conversations that we have uh, in their name uh, as a government. I think it's important that uh, Canadians in a democracy, that citizens in a democracy, uh, be apprised of uh, the work that leaders are doing on their behalf. And uh, I won't uh, shy away from being open with Canadians, even as uh, we discuss important and sometimes delicate subjects. Well, as Prime Minister Justin Trudeau addressing his tense meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping and releasing details of their briefed meeting, or the brief meeting, the Prime Minister highlighted the government's commitment to transparency. But is this a case of Trudeau championing transparency or Trudeau's attempt to save face? And after this incident, how should Canada navigate its relationship with China going forward? Let's ask our panel of MPs. We have Conservative Foreign Affairs critic Michael Chong and NDP Foreign Affairs critic Heather McPherson. We did ask the government for a Liberal MP or a minister to appear on the show today, but we were told no one was going to be made available. So we ask, uh, and we appreciate the two of you being here. We appreciate it. Mr. Chong, we're going to start with you. What did you make of that interaction between Prime Minister Xi and, um, uh, sorry, President Xi and Prime Minister Trudeau? Well, I think it's a demonstration that Beijing doesn't treat this country with a lot of respect. And I think it's just a part of a longer-term pattern of uh, a government in Beijing um, that is completely disrespectful of this country and its citizens. Um, but more importantly, I think that uh, the problem here, too, is the fact that the Prime Minister went to President Xi to ask him to stop meddling in Canadian elections here on Canadian soil. And I think what instead we should be doing is taking action here in Canada uh, to prevent Beijing from meddling in our elections. As you know, in the 2019 election, it's been reported that at least 11 candidates received illicit funds in the, in the hundreds of thousands of dollars that were funneled through Beijing's consulate in Toronto. Mm -hmm. um, the government, the prime minister, should be taking immediate action to name those 11 candidates and to ensure that this sort of thing never happens in a federal election in this country. Ms. McPherson, I want to ask you one about the meeting, but do you think the Prime Minister um, should be, I don't want to say apologizing for it, but does he need to be in damage control mode or should be standing strong and, and being proud of how he acted there? Well, I, I, you know, I don't think any of us can look at that interaction and think that that was a diplomatic win. I don't think any of us can, can see that and say that that was the way that we wanted our Prime Minister to be portrayed on the, on the world stage. You know, we have to be stronger with China. There is a lot more that Canada needs to do. Canada has... has 
not brought forward our Indo-Pacific strategy yet. We have been waiting for a very long time. You know, our allies that we want to be working with, that we want to be developing closer relationships with, have been asking for that strategy. We still haven't seen it come forward. So, so that's something that needs to be done, should, I think. Should it have been ready going into the G20 summit? Yes, of course. It should have been ready some time ago. You know, we, we need a new strategy for how we are going to work with China. I don't think anyone expects that Canada won't have a relationship with China, but there needs to be um, some direction from the federal government on what that direction looks like and how we are going to trade with China, how our diplomatic relations are going to be with China. I mean, this is, this is a country, a vitally important country in the, in the world stage, and we didn't have an ambassador in that country for nine months. Uh, it's, these, this is not the way diplomacy works. This is not the way that we should be working with, with China going forward. In terms of the Indo-Pacific strategy, we've only seen a tease, almost like a coming attraction to the main event. What do you want to see in it when it finally is unveiled? Well, I want to see, first of all, a consistent policy toward China. This government's policy has been all over the map. You know, we had Christia Freeland in Washington on October 11th uh, talking about a new foreign policy. Many people dubbed it the Freeland Doctrine. Um, and then we had Minister Jolie, the foreign minister, just a week or so ago, saying that she didn't believe in doctrines. Uh, we had Minister Champagne in Washington talking about decoupling the Canadian economy from uh, authoritarian states like the People's Republic of China. And then we had senior government sources close to Minister Jolie saying that they don't believe in decoupling. So mm -hmm. the government's policy on China has been a complete mess. And what I'm looking for is a clear, written, public document that lays out what exactly the policy is so that at least our diplomats, our bureaucrats and the whole of government are singing from the same song sheet. Is this a problem across foreign affairs that it seems like there is no one narrative that Canada has on the world stage? I mean, I think our role in the world is diminished right now. I think we have not invested in diplomacy the way that we need to around the world. And that's 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 a lot of things. It impacts our trade. It impacts our relationships with other countries. It impacts our influence, our ability as a country to, to move things forward. You know, Canada has history of punching above our weight, and we have lost that in the past, in the past several years. I want to get you both, and I've only got about 30 seconds. So on the issue of NATO and the dealing with Russia right now, I mean, does Canada now need to look towards bolstering NATO because of what we saw in Poland? Absolutely. I think yesterday's event where we had a near scare about a Russian attack on Poland, a NATO ally, is a wake-up call for Canada. It's a wake-up call that Article 5 could be triggered at any moment. Article 5 of the Washington Treaty obliges Canada to come to the defense of any NATO ally that is attacked by another country. And so that means we have to do a lot better job in this country of upholding our NATO defense commitments, of defending Canadian Arctic sovereignty, of getting on with purchasing F-35 jets, the Arctic offshore patrol vessels, and so many other things right. that this government has neglected. I just want to give Heather 15 seconds, if you don't yeah, mind. Yeah, you know, that. in fact, what I think right now is that we actually have to de-escalate. We have to think about, about you know, what happened yesterday was scary. And, mm -hmm. and of course, people in Poland, our thoughts are with them. But, but we need to think of ways to de-escalate the situation. We need to think of ways to calm down, turn down the temperature. I don't think anyone is interested in a World War III. Nobody is interested in that right now. So we need to do whatever we can to de-escalate that situation. And I think that's, that's, that's our role at the moment. Appreciate it. NDP foreign affairs critic Heather McPherson and conservative foreign affairs critic Michael Chong. I appreciate that. Once again, remind you that we did ask the liberals to participate in this uh, discussion, and they declined. Coming up, what's the political fallout of Canada's relationship with China now? The press gallery will dig into that right after this.
Let China sleep, for when she wakes, she will shake the world. That famous quote is often attributed to Napoleon Bonaparte. So was Prime Minister Trudeau's tough talk with President Xi Jinping Canada poking the dragon? And what does Canada need to do to navigate the frosty relationship with the Asian superpower? Let's bring in our press gallery panel to weigh in. We've got the Toronto Star's parliamentary reporter, Tonda McCharles, political reporter, Zian Lum, and our special guest today is Ben Roswell. He's the director of Global Democracy Program at the Canadian International Council. He's also a former Canadian ambassador to Venezuela. Mr. Roswell, we'll start with you. Was it a mistake for Trudeau to talk tough with China? No, not at all. Listen, this is an attack not just on uh, Canada's political system, but on us as citizens. Uh, the uh, actions of the Xi Jinping government to try and drive a wedge between us, the people that vote for our political representatives and our government. And so the prime minister has a duty to stand up for us, to protect us from the actions of the Chinese government. And I'm glad that he did it. He did the right thing by sharing with the Canadian media and by extension with all of us citizens what he was doing to uh, to prevent China from doing this again. I think now that he's been uh, shown some disrespect for Xi, from by Xi Jinping, uh, it's incumbent on him to go further and to uh, collaborate with other parties in the investigation into uh, this attack on, our, on Canadian democracy, share as much as they can with us to, res- to, to ensure that our confidence in the Canadian government and the, the strength of Canadian democracy is assured, and then take uh, retaliatory action against any Chinese government officials here in Canada that are, that are involved in this, uh, in, this, in this attack on our democracy. But will you consider where the relationship was and where it is possibly going? I mean, should Canada be stepping a little more carefully around here? Well, it's um, not just a relationship between two states. Uh, there's also uh, the, the society, Canadian society, to be, uh, to be taken into consideration. Uh, and we need to be protected by the, from this man, from Xi Jinping. Uh, and so the government has to take into account, you know, how easy it is going to be to do business uh, in its interactions with the government of China, but also has to, to think about what it owes us, uh, the people that have elected uh, the government or elected some of the MPs uh, that have been uh, um, interfered with in their election in this part. And so the prime minister has to balance what he's trying to uh, accomplish in other areas of the relationship with China, which is fun- his fundamental imperative of needing to protect Canadian democracy and the sovereignty of, uh, of our country in the face of a very hostile uh, action by uh, by the Chinese government. If the reports that we're hearing from uh, CSIS from CSIS are uh, are true, um, this is really a, a very serious incursion into the Canadian political process. And in some sense, that is as important or more important than our relationship with any one country, even one as important as China. We have to stand up for Canada's citizens and our for democracy. Tonda, I wanted to bring you in here. Do you think that this interaction that we saw today, is this something that Trudeau can walk away from holding his head high, or is it an embarrassment for Trudeau on the world stage? I actually don't think that it's going, that it's going to hurt the prime minister and Canadian public opinion uh, overall, because Canadians have, demanding, have been demanding the government take a tougher stance towards China ever since the three Michaels were detained. And even after their release, you know, the, while there was briefly, I think, during that period, or maybe but just before that period, a talk about a reset of the relationship, the reset that we're going to see coming out in the soon-to-be-unveiled Indo-Pacific strategy is going to take a tough line on China. And we're seeing some of that. In action, and that is what 
uh, Justin Trudeau's <laughs> public has been looking for. So he's not going to pay a price politically, I don't think. The Conservative opposition has been demanding he act in this regard. Um, does he look like an embarrassment on the world stage? No, I wouldn't say so. In fact, you know, if in this case, uh, the government has actually marshaled quite a bit of uh, support among our allies for uh, taking China on on its course of diplomacy, uh, you know, protocol. So, look, I think that I, I don't think this looks badly on Trudeau uh, to the opposite, actually. I think he's going to reap some benefit from it. Zian, I'll bring you in here. How do you think this frames this new Indo-Pacific strategy, or do you think it changes at all after this interaction? Um, I guess we'll wait and see if the government wants to disclose that. They've been pretty, you know, tight-lipped about everything mm -hmm. so far. But, you know, this whole clip, it's, it's not really a positive uh, thing for the Prime Minister because uh, what this clip made me think about particularly was the future of Canada's role in multilateral forums because in a forum like the G7, uh, Canada's role is it's a consensus builder. Mm -hmm. But on the G you know, 20, uh, G19, um, not so much. That kind of reputation, that role doesn't really carry over. And so this kind of uh, on-camera, I guess, dress-down, in my opinion, knocks out, um, knocks down, I guess, Canada's clout a little bit. But, you know, because you like context, mm -hmm. um, we all love context. Yeah, the sure. bigger context is that, you know, Xi Jinping, he also uses the camera to kind of reassert his dominance in the world, too, because if you recall last month, we saw him kind of choreograph this moment where he escorted his predecessor, Hu Jintao, out of the Communist Party National Congress, mm -hmm. which was uh, very interesting. So this kind of awareness of the camera being on him and using that kind of moment to kind of you know, reassert his dominance, take back control if he perceive that he needed to take back control. Um, it's a very kind of interesting uh, mark as well. Yeah, Ben, I want you to pick up on that. Is it basically a power play on, on the part of President Xi? Yes, that's right. I, I, I think that he's uh, trying to demonstrate that China is a far more powerful country than Canada. And I don't think we take that uh, lying down. I mean, sure, it's a, a larger country in many, many respects. And yet Canada is not without power. And our power does not come solely from an ability to build consensus or to, you know, to, to come halfway up the middle on, on every single issue. We're the ninth largest economy in the world. We've got an accomplished um, government that's able to execute the, the will of the people. We've got a high degree of confidence in of the Canadian public in uh, the government, something that not many liberal democracies have. Uh, we've got a, a niche but highly skilled uh, military. And I think it's time that we start demonstrating our power as well, not always trying to placate um, a hostile right. foreign government. Unfortunately, Ben, I hate to cut you off, but but we do have to leave it there. We're running out of time for this. I really appreciate it. Tonda Zian and Ben, thank you so much for joining us. We have to move on here. But coming up, Mission to the Moon. We bring in an astronaut who could join the Artemis mission. Stay with PowerPlay. We're about to relaunch after this. will be the second country after the United States to send an astronaut to the moon. That's quite exciting. Very early this morning, NASA's Artemis moon rocket lifted off. This flight has no crew, but if everything works as it should, people will climb aboard future missions that go straight to the moon's surface. And one of those astronauts will be a Canadian. In fact, it could be our next guest. So what will Canada's role be in that mission? Let's find out. 
And joining me now is Canadian astronaut Joshua Kutrick. Thank you so much for joining us from Ottawa. We appreciate you making the time. I wanted to start off by asking you, what is the goal of the Artemis mission? Yeah, the, the Artemis missions have as a goal in general returning humanity to the moon. And it's to do so in a bit of a way probably that's different from Apollo. Um, it's going this time to stay there, to, to sustain and to have a permanent presence of exploration. Uh, and it's also going there, importantly, internationally, not just the United States, but the United States leading its partners, including uh, one of its prime partners, us, Canada and the Canadian Space Agency. So it has been 50 years since we walked on the moon. Why is there this renewed interest now? I think space in general to me is about opportunity. Um, the moon is certainly about opportunity for us in the future. I think Canadian prosperity hangs on that. Um, and the opportunity in, in different senses, the opportunity of the discovery and the science, the technology, the innovation that we're going to encounter by going to the moon, um, and also the opportunity that just comes from exploring, from continuing to, to push boundaries, broaden our collective horizon. I mean, this is what has always made us successful as a species. This is what we have to keep doing, is trying to explore that next frontier. Um, we've been in low Earth orbit for a long time, solving challenges there, and it, it's time to take the next step which is all the way out to the moon. So now if you are able to take that next step, you personally, if you're that Canadian that has chosen to go up on one of the future missions, what work could you be doing? I mean, the Canadian that flies uh, first will fly in 2024. They're going to be testing out systems on the new Artemis spacecraft, Orion, the space launch system, making sure that it's all ready. Um, and then we, we will be flying a Canadian on a second moon mission um, years down the road. And at that point, I expect that person to be doing science there, to be doing research and development in the lunar orbit environment, um, all with the view really of solving problems here on Earth, but also looking down the range and, and getting ready for the next huge step, uh, which will take us someday all the way out to Mars. I think a lot of Canadians know the Canadian Space Agency and the important role that it plays with NASA and space exploration and Canada Arm 1 and 2 and that sort of thing. But in this specifically, in Artemis, how important of a role is Canada uh, going, going to be playing in this? It, it's, a, it's a huge role. We're on the critical path to lunar exploration. Um, and it's, it's something that I'm very proud of as a Canadian. I think it's also something that's very good for us as Canadians, for our country, if you think about it. Um, the first time humans go back since Apollo, the first time a non-American goes to the moon, uh, this will be the fastest and the furthest that any human being has ever gone, um, and it's Canada. It's little Canada, it's the giant United States, and one of its prime partners, proud partners, small little Canada there. We're contributing in major ways. We're building the robotic system right now that will assemble the moon space station gateway. Um, we're contributing other science in, in health and food. Uh, and so we're making major contributions, and I think we're seeing that recognized uh, in, in the seats and who flies on this first mission, Artemis II in 2024. And we'll be all watching. Astronaut Joshua Kutrick, thank you so much for taking the time today. We appreciate it. Thank you. And that is your Power Play Day in politics. Thanks so much for spending your time with us. We'll be right back here tomorrow. Until then, have a great night, everyone.